If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health or substance use crisis, having thoughts of suicide, or just needs to talk, call 988. 988 provides 24-7 direct connection to free, confidential, and compassionate support in your phone's local area code. When you call 988 in Santa Clara County, you'll talk with trained crisis counselors who will support you and connect you to local resources if needed. You are not alone in crisis. There is hope. I've confronted hundreds of men over two decades. I have been in television for 24 years. I just came to get something to eat. And I have very seldom been at a loss for words. I just came to get something to eat. Men online looking for children to sexually assault. What's the motive here? It's, Explain it to me. I don't no, know you're right. No, you're right. It's stupid. It's, it's not. It's an no. illegal thing. Yeah, I know. I did a stupid thing. Men from all walks of life. A doctor, a teacher, a clergyman. You sent pornographic pictures through the mail. Okay, that's a federal offense right there. You know I'm in trouble, and I know I'm in trouble. I tried to get into their heads and understand why. Who we have tonight? Uh, I, I want to know who you are. I want to know a little bit more about you first. Can I eat first? Sure, go ahead. Let's see if any of this sounds familiar while you enjoy your pizza. And ultimately, make sure they face justice. You ask her if she's a virgin. I ask everybody all kinds of stuff. It's just talk. You ask her if she's horny. What's wrong with that? You ask if she does anal. It's a question. Who are they? Have they tried to prey on other children? And where are they now? These are the predators I've caught. I'm Chris Hansen. As you know, one of the things I often speak about here on the Predators I've Caught podcast is having people on as guests who can talk about whether or not some of these predators can be treated and somehow cured or monitored, and also to talk about the impact on the victims of these predators. And one of the benefits of speaking at different conferences, as I often do to talk about the predator investigation experience, is that I meet some very, very interesting people in this field. And earlier this year, Gabriel and I were at the Childproof America conference talking about human trafficking and how the predator investigations fit into that. And there were numerous guests. And we were fortunate enough to sit next to a husband and wife team, Dr. Stephanie Thurston Simmons and, and Brian Simmons, who run a practice near Dallas called New Solutions Counseling and Trauma Center. And the results that they have obtained are, are impressive. And also, to me, listening to them speak and talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, it struck me that not only is this somewhat cutting edge, but it's, it's also, in a way, common sense. And so both Stephanie and Brian are joining me in this episode. Stephanie, Brian, thanks for joining me. How are you? We're good. Thanks for having us. Yeah, very good, Chris. Thanks for having us on. Well, it's a pleasure on my part to tell me how all this began. Brian, you're a former police officer in Dallas also a sheriff's deputy with an interest in this. Stephanie, you've been in the world of therapy for some time, almost 20 years now. Stephanie, what brought you into this field? What was so interesting for you to get into this in the first place? You know, I started my career uh, in private practice. I was doing about four internships at the time when I was in graduate school. And Two of them, well, three of them actually were sex offender or sexual abuse victim specific. So from the very inception of my practice, if I wasn't working with general population from a family systems standpoint, I was working with sex offending. And so it didn't take me very long to realize that I had a passion for working with the population, that it's a very small group of treatment providers who actually do get trained and work with the population. And so the agency I was a contract therapist with for a long time, that's 
about 90% of what we served. We did a little bit of child protective services, which would have some treatment overlap. But I started off really working with the sex offenders and I've done that for about 23 years now. And then once Brian joined the practice, he started helping me with the sex offender treatment groups. And it was a fascinating dynamic to combine the, not just the male dynamic, but also the for police force, that law enforcement angle of the group. And it really enriched the program. We also started transitioning over to trauma PTSD spectrum. We treat an enormous amount of trauma and have some specializations with working with neurophysiology and healing brain. And so what Brian and I have done the last few years is do a really interesting marriage of standardized sex offender treatment protocol. and Literally and figuratively. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> yeah, true. And combining that with what we know empirically works with the sex offender population as well as the sexual abuse victims and family dynamics, juvenile and adult, with the neurophysiology we know from trauma, stress-related treatments that's highly empirically supported. And once we combined the two, it was just a fascinating way to understand sex offender rehabilitation, as well as the sexual abuse victims and what their potentiality is for being amenable for treatment. Can you heal them? If so, to what extent? And to quote you, it actually is pretty common sense, really. I was impressed by that. How do you decide or how is it determined whether or not a sex offender a predator can be treated effectively and potentially rehabilitated. I get asked this question all the time. Do you have to lock them up? Is there a treatment protocol? And I, I always answer, it's not that clear in every case. As a police officer, Brian, and a sheriff's deputy, when you left that world to come into the therapy world, did you think there was any chance that a sex offender or predator could be rehabilitated? I don't know. I don't know if this is necessarily appropriate for the podcast or not, but I mean, my answer would have been probably a 38 cent bullet was about the best way to deal with that long term, right? Just because of what I'd experienced. I mean, I just, I thought it was a hopeless scenario. And so my, obviously being in law enforcement, my focus was on proactive prevention, right? Like how do we keep this danger out of the community? How do I not have to take another report from a mother and child that's gone through something like this, you know? So me looking down the road, that was my perspective is that, you know, we need to lock them up for with key, prevent any sort of opportunity again, not really give them chances. And it just seemed like it was a reasonable solution to the problem. But what I experienced under the kind of treatment that she provides was something very, very different, very different and very different than I'd seen as we got into this, that the results that other therapists get as well. So, and I think a lot of that was how the program that she does is structured. So... How does it work? How do you figure out how to get into somebody's psyche? Somebody who has committed a sex offense, who has been a predator, and change them. Take me in this process. We get asked constantly, can they really be rehabilitated? Um, and the answer is unequivocally, most likely. It depends on their amenability for treatment. And it's a, it's a very heterogeneous population. You have both genders, you have all ages, you have all levels of education, all levels of ethnicities, you have different levels of socioeconomic status, married, single, no sexual history, full sexual history, you name it. And so it makes it a very complex process. It really does to assess an offender when they come in. A sex offender is a legal term. You know, it's commonly used in the languaging, but it's actually a term that has to be designated by the courts if somebody is adjudicated or convicted as a sex offender. And in doing so, particularly the state where we live, we live in Texas, each state has their own licensing board that will require specific elements to be conducted and uh, addressed in sex offender treatment. And it is very empirically supported. In Texas, not every state requires the license, but in Texas we do. And when we follow the standardized treatment protocol, it's very effective. We showed that the recidivism rate or the reoffending rate when someone successfully completes treatment is extremely low. Depending on the research you read, it can be anywhere from 4 to 12%. 
Now, that being said, with the standardized treatment protocol, if you don't address all areas of functioning for an offender, you just stick to the sexual deviancy and impulsivity components, their recidivism rate for non-sex-based crimes is actually quite higher. So in other words, they learn how to not sexually act out. But if you don't address the criminality and some of the character defects, they end up just continuing to commit crimes in other ways. So the standardized treatment protocol that Texas follows, and most states do, you have a very extensive sex offender evaluation process where we put them through risk assessments and psychosexual evaluations that requires certain components to be covered in the evaluations as well as standardized assessments that are very empirically supported. When these, I say guys, we also have women too. So if I need sure. um, absolutely the male prone, I'm also including females. But when you do these evaluations, it's including personality tests. It's including standardized assessments for their sexual interests, standardized assessments for their sexual arousal patterns. You're looking for a sex history. You're looking for the full breadth and scope of not just their sexual proclivities, but a snapshot of who this person is. There's also limitations to the evaluation process too, depending on the manner and type of the offending behaviors. Most of the research is done on hands-on offenses, not necessarily the child pornography or the online solicitors or even just those that stay online, but they don't actually ever actually meet up with a victim. So there are some limitations in the evaluation process, but for the most part, if we also use the polygraph process as well, we will know fairly quickly a treatment if someone is amenable for treatment just based off the standardized protocol. A lot of it has to do with their level of empathy for others, criminal thinking, level of deviancy. Do they have capacity to develop victim empathy and relationship skills? Do they have bonding attachment issues? Do they have a trauma history? So it's a very involved and detailed process to break down what treatment needs somebody has and are they amenable to treatment? Is this a case where an offender has to want to get better? Yes. In order to affect change, they have to really commit themselves? Not at the beginning. Right. At some point. That's what I was that's what I was going to add to that. At some point you have to be able to get them to a place where they see through a different lens than they've been seeing through. And that's really the hard part is that wall that I, I mean It's also the fun part. Yeah, is getting it to that place. That. Yeah. What causes somebody to be a predator, to be a sex offender, especially when you're talking about somebody who otherwise may lead a normal life, who may be married, who may have children of their own? And we see this in the predator investigation. I asked a guy just a a month and a half ago if he'd be comfortable if a strange man walked into his home to meet his daughters. And of course not. And then the next question is, well, why did you think it was okay for you to walk into this home? to meet a young girl. How does somebody who lives a fairly normal life on the surface cross the line and want to meet an underaged boy or girl in person for sex? Because it is such a heterogeneous group, there are no profiles for sex offenders. There is no standardized kind of like characteristic checklist like we would have, say, for serial killers. We have instead what's called typologies. And there are a few different models based on research that will identify, you know, five types of this or seven types of that. But if I really oversimplify it, we're talking about a few factors. Do they have capacity for healthy relationships of bonding and attachment? Do they have their emotional needs met in healthy ways or did they learn to be really dysfunctional? Were they neglected? Do they have the capacity to connect with others? Are they isolated? Do they have trauma histories where they now are angry or emotionally frozen, which we would call dissociative? There's many features involved in why someone gets interested in deviant sex. Sex history is a huge part of that. We were going to be looking to see what was their introduction into sex? Do they have pornography histories? What types of sexual behaviors were they interested in? What age did they get introduced to it? Age eight is the standardized age that 
male children start to be introduced into pornography now. It was nine and now it's eight. Yeah. Wow. If you look at- that strikes me as awfully early, even with everything I've seen, eight is the age when children, boys, are introduced into pornography. Yeah, and they are addicted by 10. And the numbers will grow exponentially since the pandemic when we had everybody be at home and locked down now. An organization called Polaris came out with the Polaris Project. They gave their 2020 statistics on human sex trafficking in specific. The online attempts to groom and recruit a victim for sex trafficking was increased by 22% just in 2020 with the pandemic. I think the numbers are going to grow, but we're also seeing an increase in pornography with children just because of the pandemic. So any statistics you might see, actually, they're a misrepresentation of the last couple of years. But what makes someone sexually act out is do they have their emotional needs met in healthy ways? Do they even know how to do that? So you're talking about relationship skills. You're talking about self-regulation. Do they know how to manage when they are stressed out? Do they know how to handle triggers if they get what in uh, trauma-informed care of dysregulation when they go from a place of calm, safety into dis-ease, anxiety, anger, loneliness, depression, whatever that, where the trauma situations might happen? And in what role does sex play to fill some of those deficits in their lives? Loneliness, do they have the capacity to have healthy relationships or do they have the inability to connect with others. And so something like pornography or fantasy or masturbation or online solicitation will help them have that faux relationship, just a little bit brief intimacy, but they don't have to be fully vulnerable. They can stay in their fantasies or they can have just a quick fix of sex with somebody, but they don't have to really connect and have a full relationship where they're responsible with somebody. And then you've got those that are just into the deviancy. They've got paraphilias, which are sexual arousal disorders that are diagnosable. Those that have fetishes and more of the dark underground type of sexual interests where they can have a parallel life of, they can have a primary relationship where it's happy. They can have a fulfilling sex life and have a double life where they've got this deviant seedy thing on the side that they're also interested in. There's a myriad of reasons why someone sexually acts out, but it's going to be definitely sexually based and the ability to get emotional needs met and to keep their body regulated, really. How many of these offenders were victims of some sort of sexual trauma themselves when they were young? The research consistently shows that it's roughly about 33%. Uh, Now that's a sex offender prison population that the research is based on. So we have to be careful generalizing it to those on probation or those that are unidentified. But empirically, it's about a third of them have been sexually abused themselves, which is a significant number. When you've got um, a population of sex offending, people think they're just pedophiles. But there's a very, it's actually a very small percent. Depending on the research you read, it can be up to 13% are identified as pedophilia. That means the bulk of sex offending is not a sexual arousal disorder where they're attracted to somebody of a buffing type of 12 and under. It's for other reasons. It's filling a different type of need. Well, I know that pedophilia has a very specific definition, which is why in our investigations we use the term predator because it seems to be a more accurate mm-hmm. catch-all. But I'm always amazed that there are these guys, at least in, in our cases, who have a fairly normal life, who have a job, who have relationships, and yet they have this drive to get in a chat room or into some social media platform and meet an underage boy or girl, 15, 14, 13. And the grooming follows almost a template when I read these transcripts. Yep. Yeah. It's almost like there's a place on the dark web where they can go and get instructions on how to do this. But what makes a guy say, okay, I'm no longer interested in 20-year-old people or 30-year-old people or 40-year-old people. I'm going to cross this line and try to have a relationship with a, with a kid. Where does that come from? It's very common that porn is part of it. They also are very attracted to the taboo of it. There is a subset of sex offenders that love the fact that it's wrong 
that it's illegal, there's a rush to it. It really builds into that fantasy. They also change their perceptions on healthy sex, relationships, the role of sex with images of porn. And you'll see a huge correlation with people that are doing sexual behaviors, whether it's online or hands-on, we'll see a huge correlation with the belief sets and the impressions they have about sex and the person they're having sex with, whether they are relationship romanticized, fantasy-based, or if it's just sexualized and objectifying up through the really deviant paraphilias and fetishes that we see. But over time, they degrade, they, they start eroding their own sexual arousal patterns and they break those own internal boundaries. And when they get introduced to a sexual stimulus, it could be verbal in a chat room, it could be a pornographic image. They are actually wiring their brains, their neurons for what their body's getting aroused to. And they get a massive dumping of uh, dopamine. Dopamine is the excitability chemical in the brain. There's different chemicals, structural changes that happen whenever we get introduced to something that's new, novel, exciting, especially if it's taboo, you will get different neurochemistry in the brain and then your neurons actually hardwire for that, changing the brain structure to be aroused and interested to this stimulus. And after you do that a while, the brain is very bored with that particular stimulus. Been there, done that. It has to see something else now to get that same level of biochemical dumping. And so you'll see the pornography images or how the chat rooms are going or the behaviors they're doing start progressing and increasing in levels of deviancy or they'll take different types of pornographic images or sexual acts, acts they'll do. You'll see it progress over time. And what ends up happening is they're wiring their brains to get the same level of biochemical excitability and connection with unhealthy sexual stimuli and normal sexual partners don't do it anymore. Yeah, and then you see a lot of relationships too where some of the pornographic images that they're watching, they start to try and act those out in the relationship with, a, with an intimate partner, you know, to try and drive that dynamic to get the same sort of stimulation. So over time, right, the, the relationship itself that is this stable relationship that's part of their normal life is starting to lose its ability to satisfy them. But yet, especially those that have it as a coping skill or have used it as a coping skill, what maybe drove them to pornography in the first place was the real quick reward system to it where you don't have to put a lot of emotional commitment in. I need to regulate my physiology. I'm too high, I'm anxious, I'm feeling insecure. And you have these kind of feeling states that we say are attached with things like pornography it becomes a real quick place to go to get release, masturbate real quick, be done. And then what happens is, is that normal stable life that you're talking about that everybody else would say is a marker of success. It isn't a marker of success for them anymore. They're not able to regulate in that normal environment. Normality now is it starts to become boring and then the fantasy starts to grow on the side. More about this predator I've caught in a moment. During the height of the pandemic, the reports by social media platforms to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children of inappropriate contacts between adults and children the transmission of pornography from adults to children and the viewing of child pornography absolutely skyrocketed, yeah. mm -hmm. unquestionably. Given that more people were spending more time online, given the fact that there are so many social media platforms now upon which adults can approach children, are we ever going to get a handle on this given the ubiquitous nature of the internet? Is the cat out of the bag here? The fear is yes. I mean, it, it's been difficult without the pandemic. I think it just added fuel to the problem that was already there, where after the advent of the internet, particularly after fiber optics, you know, when you didn't just have the dial-up of fiber optics, became very commonplace. And you had such rapid ability to access sex. We saw sexual compulsivity really skyrocket that, especially when it all became very free. And I think that we've been honestly chasing our tail for many, many years. And 
the common discourse when we go to trainings and the conferences or we look at the latest data and, and online research is scared. There isn't really any protocol to get this back to where it was other than trying to stabilize the whole. And when, it, when we go back to basics, it's very much about rehabilitation versus uh, punishment. You know, are, are you living in a punitive state with punitive protocols or are you in a rehabilitative state where someone is arrested and prosecuted for a sex crime? Are they going to be getting treatment and rehabilitation or do we put it back in prison? And of course, what do we do with trying to stabilize the home environment? Psychoeducation for families and, you know, safety for online issues, how to keep your kids safe from internet, social media information. A lot of this, you know, social media apps are a huge problem, especially since the pandemic hit with children being approached by online predators or then just being exposed to sexual images. And it's really about getting a grassroots return to stabilizing grassroots, strengthening parent involvement with children and strengthening social skills and connection in the community. But that's going to take so long. We don't have really time or resources. And a lot of parents are too exhausted to even care at, honestly. Yeah. The, I mean, I think it's going to take is a basic understanding of the nervous system, which has been lacking too, like how it works, you know, which is as we talk about what drives folks to these offenses, you know, if you don't know how to stabilize your own nervous system, then that's what attracts you to some unhealthy means to do so. And we just don't know ourselves well enough. I think it's a ways. How do we start on that, Brian? I mean, is there a link between neurological damage, perhaps even physical damage to the brain and offending in this way? Is there a link there? When you start to look at like different things that are coming into your office, different disorders that people are presenting with disorders that would be diagnosable in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, for example. So many of them have to do with our regulation issues inside of the nervous system. There's a very small percentage of issues that walk into a therapist's office that are actually organic in nature. The majority of them are a dysregulated nervous system or the way we have stored memories and we've built neural connections that are creating arousal patterns inside of us. Solutions to problems, for example, that aren't benefiting us But when you look at somebody's accumulated memory, you start to see that those are really viable solutions for them, given how they've watched situations play out. So the brain is actually reacting to this volume of stored memory and stored interaction that they have. This is kind of a new concept for mental health. I mean, this is something that's sort of really revolutionized and changed the way we approach trauma. Very rarely when we're dealing, when we've dealt with offenders in group, I think I might feel like with this, she's been doing it far longer than I have and with far more, far more offenders or predators, you'll find there's some degree of trauma somewhere in there that has caused them to to kind of recoil into this very self-protective, very insecure place. And it's kind of like you talked about, you've got to break through all of that in the treatment process. That's one of the things that I, I think the view that I bring to this, maybe that's a little bit different coming in, not believing that you could rehabilitate the majority of them. And some of them you can't, but just the levels of defensive protection that they have built around themselves what it takes, and, and Sokol is actually a really good example of this. I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about him a little bit, but how, how much he has built around himself this level of protection so he can pursue what he wants, but try and find a way to feel good about himself doing it, you know, and just in the layers. And so you've got to absolutely break down those internal misconceptions and misperceptions that they have about themselves and, you know, cut through, cut through and actually, that's what, either opens up empathy or doesn't, as she was saying, which is so critical to the overall treatment process. I have so many questions here about the treatment process. As I mentioned earlier, this will be an ongoing conversation, but you bring up Jeff Sokol, so let's go there next. What kind of pizza we have tonight? Who's this? I'll get to that in a minute. Who are you? Who are you? You tell me first. You're Jeff, right? Yeah. And what are you doing here tonight, Jeff? Hanging out. Hanging out with whom? With her. Who's her? Uh, I, I, I want to know who you are. I want to know a little bit more about you first. Can I eat first? Sure, go ahead. Tell me who you are, because, you know, I didn't know there would be other people here. Well, what did you expect to happen this time, Jeff? 
didn't have any expectations. No expectations whatsoever? No. So you drove two and a half hours? Sure did. From Boston. <sighs> Who are you? To come here. Are you her dad? To meet a young girl. Are you, are you her dad? I will get to that in a minute. Uh -huh. Go ahead, have a bite. I haven't done anything wrong. Obviously, he's become iconic because of the pizza, because of his smarmy attitude towards me, because of his lack of empathy. And you looked at the chats. Obviously, you didn't treat Jeff Sokol, but I provided to you just about everything we had in our file on him. So he is in a chat room on a social media platform. And he knows right away that this girl, this decoy, is posing as a 13-year-old girl. And, and every indication is that he knows or he believes he's talking to a 13-year-old girl. And you watch the grooming process. Now, again, this isn't a guy who's got a, a wife and kids and an idyllic lifestyle at home. But he's not a freak. He's got a job. What makes him get in his car in Boston after this chat? sexually charged conversation with somebody he thinks is a 13-year-old girl and, and go there to try to fulfill this fantasy. What's going on in Jeff Sokol's mind? It appears as though, and again, I, again, I don't know if that's assessment, but it does appear that he would be a pretty classic case for what we call an intimacy avoidance attachment style. Those typically tend to be the guys that hide behind the internet. They can be online chatting. They can be gamers. They tend to be tech savvy and they may have a couple of friends, but they don't have a large social network. They tend to be maybe shy or reserved, highly insecure. They don't put themselves out there to be known. They end up having a huge fantasy life in their head. And the way he conducted himself, he was definitely fantasy online solicitor, sex offender subtype of fantasy driven, but ended up being predatory driven. So we'd call that a mixed Based on the footage, it looked like this may have been the first time that he met up with somebody, maybe a polygraph or something to verify that was his first time. He did have some micro expressions or some forensics tells that looks like he was really new to meeting somebody face to face. And if that's the case, you caught him right when he was starting to take off. Because once you live in this fantasy driven online world it's all about the fantasy it's very compulsive and they get very highly charged and aroused for that fantasy and the way the conversations are going and just based on how he would conduct himself in their dialogue either with the phone call or through the online chatting it was quite a bit different when he got face to face with this seemingly minor girl who was no longer verbally as savvy or pursuant as she was when they were not face to face. And you could tell that immediately, and Brian actually articulated it very well, that you could tell immediately his fantasy was blown the minute he got there and he started presenting she, frustration. She wouldn't hug him. She wouldn't hug him. Right. I mean, he walks in, he's got the pizza and he's ready to go. He wants a hug and she's obviously been instructed not to, mm -hmm. you know, for security reasons, have physical contact with him. And so she leaves and, and I walk in, but you see a change in his demeanor once he doesn't get this immediate gratification of a hug with the girl he thinks is 13. Tell me about that. It's not the confirmation he's looking for. Several times during the right chat messages and even like when telephone call, when she'll give him positive affirmation, he's surprised by it. Like he's going down this avenue, it appears of chatting with her, but doesn't expect it to work. That's how insecure he is. He doesn't expect her to actually like him. And so when she does, he's very attracted and drawn to that. He'll even ask her, like there was a moment, a couple moments where she would make a comment about him, like the depth of his voice or something like that. And he was specifically asked, do you like that? And be looking for her to provide that affirmation for him. So when he walks in and she's standoffish to him, it immediately... He starts to feel this feeling of, yeah, the rejection and, and that, that she's not into it. But his whole defense about being there is based on this thing that he talks about several times in the interview about, well, hey, I'm not I'm not a bad guy. I'm not this. I'm not, you know, I'm not. He says I'm not evil at one point. He says, if I could see how people who don't know all the facts would interpret me, you know, I get that. I can see that. 
his whole view of himself is different. And so when the fantasy doesn't match that, when she doesn't look willing and entertaining, it immediately creates this cognitive dissonance or this conflict in him. And he starts to recoil into his insecurity again. He's very insecure throughout the entire chat, focused on himself is what you see a lot, this obsession. When you break down the chat, you can definitely see, and this is where a young girl doesn't recognize how selfish and self-consumed and self-obsessed he is. That's also one of the reasons why they're such a vulnerable population, because they don't understand some of these communicative idiosyncrasies. And he talks in the chat, and I ask him about it later, about this marriage contract. Mm -hmm. And apparently in his mind, he thinks that if he can portray himself as having the intent to marry her or to somehow have this agreement that it will protect him from criminal prosecution. Who thinks that? Yeah, that's the kind of guy that would get eaten alive in the sex offender group. Like he'd be completely shamed and made fun of by the other offenders because the the level of his self-deception is unbelievable. They all have levels of self-deception, but he has a huge dose of it. The fact that he was convincing himself that a marital contract was a viable option to somehow present to somebody and it would work shows the level of self-manipulation, just the cognitive distortions this guy's carrying around that he can actually make this okay to himself, make it okay to other people and justify and minimize the extent of the deviancy that he's doing. And when he arrived at the house and she wouldn't hug him, you know, that instant reality check of, oh, she's not into me. Oh, this isn't as sexually charged and romanticized and amazing as I thought it would get to be on the way here. He recoiled and got frustrated. He also was making comments about how she didn't look like she did online. So the way she was presenting herself was also fact-checking this self-deception and fantasy he'd created in his head about the female he was going to go have this sexual encounter with. Jeff Sokol in my conversation, was eating pizza virtually the whole time. Offered me a piece of pizza, offered the crew a piece of pizza. Now, I don't think he was trying to be funny. Is that just anxiousness? Is that just anxiety? Is that nervousness? Is it arrogance? Is it just coping in a, in a really bad situation, all of the above? It was absolutely arrogant entitlement absolute arrogant entitlement, which is the mild end of a narcissism sector, to use that term a little loosely. It was also a deflection. It was a way that he could distance from reality what was happening. It's almost like having a pacifier, like it was his binky, you know, it was a way to not really soak in the breadth and scope of what was happening. He was just doing a normal behavior, trying to deflect from the realities while he was thinking, what was he going to do about this? And it was really self-regulating. We, we have a slightly, maybe not a slightly different, I guess I would say a slightly different perspective because I look at it through sort of the interrogation law enforcement side of it, right? And what that means inside of that room. And so the eating is a way to slow it down. It's a way to, it's a way to fill the dead pause spaces in between while he is thinking 100% agree with that part, but it's also an attempt to look innocent. It's to look like, Hey, there's nothing going on here. And he reiterates that several times in the interview with the investigator that, you know what I mean? I, my intentions were good. My intentions were good, right? So his surprise, it's, it's the only thing I think in that moment, he could grab to that made him not look awkward. He tried to put it on me like I was the bad guy. What am I doing there interrupting his, his date night? Well, you as well as when he was at the police station with a police officer investigator, he was doing a lot of gaslighting, which is a manipulative conversation style where I'm going to throw what you just said back on you. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm going to throw it back on you and either make year the problem make you the one that's inaccurate. I'm going to maybe change the focus on another topic, but I'm getting out of what you just said. And I put the responsibility back onto you and it makes the receiver feel like they're, maybe they're wrong. You start questioning judgment. It's, it's a very manipulative conversation style that we really see out of the fetters, but it's also part of narcissism. Yeah, he's a guy that doesn't feel victimized. I mean, that's his type. That's his kind of personality type in life. Well, I also, I think he was relying on the fact that he hadn't done anything yet. Yeah. You know, he had just walked right. into a home. He hadn't had right. any physical or sexual contact. Based upon what you two saw there, had a 13-year-old girl been present and willing and had this not been a sting operation, do you think 
he would have had sex with a 13-year-old. I think it's a high probability he would have. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's really much doubt if the opportunity had presented itself and she looked willing. I think he would have allowed himself to go there. He was on the fence with it, I think, in route. He talked about his fear in the conversation, in the call with her leading up to it, you know, that, well, if it goes here, that was the whole idea behind marriage. He was trying to find a way through the marriage contract and all that to basically get what he wanted. And that's that obsessive alt part of that fixation. Yeah, that fixation and try and make that fantasy play out the way you want to. That's why he went to such, that's why he's an interesting case because he really shows the lengths that they go to to try and achieve the objective, whether it's moving parents out of the way, isolating the victim, trying to push them away from social connections that might challenge them or that they might, you know, divulge something to. If this had progressed, if it had gone in, he would have gaslit her and made it where he said several times about, do you realize what could happen to me? I mean, he's trying to put her in a place where she's amenable to this. So yeah, responsible. So yeah, I don't know. It, it could go either way. He could have said no because it was the first time. I don't, but he came prepared for it to go the distance. And he says straight up in the conversation, I could get into trouble for this because of our age difference, go to jail. And makes it very clear that she's got to conduct herself in a way where he doesn't get caught. Right. And that's where this marriage contract plays in. Yeah, like I said, he's very, he's pretty, I think he's pretty truthful in his engagement. It's a really good, shows his mindset, you know, through the, through the communication. Because I think you, as, as Stephanie mentioned, I think you did catch him before he actually had, he was working out some of these insecurities and some of these nuances that wouldn't appear later if he got away with this. He would be more, yeah, he would be more finessed later on down the road. More about this predator I've caught in a moment. Life can be overwhelming and many people are just plain burned out without even knowing it. Symptoms can include lack of motivation, feeling helpless or trapped, detachment, fatigue, and so much more. I know sometimes that because of the dark material I cover, I can feel some of those symptoms and I know when it's time to take a break and talk to somebody about those feelings and the symptoms. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in less than 48 hours. Predators I've Caught with Chris Hansen listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com slash Hansen. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Hansen. If Sokol hadn't shown up in our investigation, do you think it was just a matter of time before he did connect with an underage girl online and physically get involved with her? I mean, my impression is in his case in particular, it would have been inevitable. If nothing else, because of the extent he went to to research that ridiculous marital contract, he had already read all of the laws. He was trying to tailor it to specific his state. He was presenting it to her. He talked about it tons of times. He was grooming her, putting her in a position to be just as much equally emotionally responsible for the decision. Yeah, I think that he would eventually have done it. Yeah, I think the most telling aspect is the way he was looking at her emotionally, how he referred to her. Because again, he's showing he knows it's legally wrong. And he is override when he goes and shows up, it's on the fence whether he was probably going to show or not. But when he made that move to override the emotional side, he had done a lot of work already to try and put her in a position emotionally and maturity wise where he could justify that. And so the fact that he was that progressed in his ability to try and make it okay for himself, I think means eventually he probably would have. I just don't know for sure, but I think it's really, really high probability. I also wanted to Mentioned this too. Did you see the the photos that he sent of his apartment? Did you see the photo that was on the wall? What does that say to you? Well, that 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 tells me that he's already got some very normalized views of sexual uh, arousal and sexual interaction and what's appropriate, like what's appropriate. So I mean, he's sending that picture of his apartment with that photo on the wall. So 
he's already got some very minimized views of that and, and is missing some very significant social cues on how stuff like that would be perceived. The photo that you're referring to is a suggestive photo of a, of a young woman, correct? Yeah, from behind looking at herself, I think in the mirror is what it looked like while she's brushing her hair. Yes, exactly. Yeah, this visual, yeah. this visual image of that. You would think he would be a tough guy to treat, Jeff Sokol? I think he'd be tough on an individual basis. I think if you had him in a group dynamic with other adjudicated and convicted sex offenders who have been at varying stages of the treatment and healing process, I think he'd be pretty easy because what you end up doing is the beauty of group treatment versus individual. There's pros and cons to both, but the beauty of group treatment is you're talking about peer socialization. You're talking about identifying their insecurities. They're in a room full of other, in this case, other men who have also committed crimes, but can call him out on his deviancy because they are him. And the fact that he would be criticized and he wouldn't be able to groom and manipulate and hide behind this deception, he would be exposed and therefore his vulnerabilities would be exposed. Then having to learn how to sit in that anxiety and be called out for how they manage it in a dysfunctional way, learning how to just submit to the humility of the process is part of the keep changing these guys. I think one-on-one, he'd be really difficult. He'd be able to manipulate, deflect, to get defensive like he did with the investigator. So group therapy often works for these guys. Absolutely. If you look empirically, group therapy shows more treatment effectiveness than individual. There is definitely strengths with individual. Sometimes individual treatment is more beneficial than group. Like if you have someone with, say, psychopathy or psychopathic features, you do not want them in a, in a group dynamic. They're going to tear the dynamics that you got to pull them out. Or someone that, say, might have uh, mental illness or sometimes someone with autism spectrum won't necessarily fit to a general population group. But as far as general population offenders go, group therapy is much more effective than individual. And empirically, they don't recidivate. They actually do get healed. Now, Sokol, like so many of the others in that particular investigation, got pretty severe sentences suspended. He, like others, served 30 months. That was the sentence. And at the sentencing, his lawyer made a big deal out of the fact that he had passed a test where sensors had been put on his genitalia and he had been shown sexually suggestive pictures of of children and that he did not react. He does his 30 months. He comes out. He's got probation and registration as a sex offender for 10 years. Again, you're not familiar with whatever treatment protocol he underwent or what he goes through specifically in terms of his sex offender registration. But, and maybe this isn't a fair question based upon the fact that you haven't ever interviewed him, but is he still a danger to to children, to society? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, assuming that he hasn't progressed in treatment at this point. Sokol, after he got out of prison, petitioned a court to change his name, and he asked as part of this to keep the hearing closed to the public. The judge denied the request to keep the hearing private, and he denied his request to change his name. The fact that he would do that speaks to a couple of things, I think, but I want to get your opinion on it. Obviously, because he was featured in Hanson versus Predator, one of my Predator investigations, people followed him. People kept track of him. He was, you know, sought out online. And, you know, you could see where a guy would say, okay, I'm not going to reoffend, but I don't want to be harassed or hassled and to change his name. But the fact that he would do that, what does that say about Jeff Sokol post-conviction, post-prison sentence? Yeah, there are two terms that I think uh, relate a lot to kind of the work we do in understanding overall the likelihood of aberrant behavior returning or unhealthy behavior patterns returning. One of his predictive analytics Predictive analytics is a business term that's uh, oftentimes used by tech companies to, you know, it's, it's what they base advertising out, right? They, they follow so much of what you do online and then they develop advertising patterns based on what they think you're going to be interested in. On the law enforcement and the surveillance side, right? Then we talk about patterns of life and understanding how people move through their world. When you put those two things together, you end up with a pretty good kind of cross-sectional viewpoint about where somebody's at and sort of what they may or, or may not do. 
And so I think when you're looking at that particular aspect and that particular request on his part, one of the things we find in the offender population is that they're always looking for the outs. You know, they're always looking a lot of times for the easy way out of something. Those that have narcissistic tendencies or those that are self-obsessed, the ones that have healed that are connected to humility, they're more comfortable accepting the consequences and taking responsibility for the choices that they've done. That's where we talk about like the empathy and building empathy. Do they have that as a mechanism to keep them from reoffending? So I think it's very possible. I don't obviously know for a fact, but it's very possible that this request on his part is him trying to take advantage of the circumstance that he found himself in to be able to try and get some distance from the offense that he engaged in so that, you know, in terms, he's technically distancing himself from responsibility to a degree. It definitely is concerning that potentially he hasn't taken full responsibility for it. So I think that's what it's potentially a predictor of. I think that's a valid point. If I were involved in, say, that case, I would want to know how he did in treatment. How did he progress? Was he humble and accountable? Was he trying to use it as another distancing escape mechanism from his full accountability? Or does he have justifiable reasons why he, he's not able to function in the world? There, there are so many instances where the sex offenders, because they've got that label, and even those that will register, that used to be a lifetime in Texas, and now it can be up to 10, and sometimes they don't have to now. But they can have full rehabilitation, become law-abiding citizens that can give back to the world and because of their offense history and their ability to be pulled up online, they cannot get jobs. They can't get housing. They will be sometimes stalked or targeted by communities. If they end up having future families, their families also get targeted by communities. So it can be a deficit. The online registration doesn't work. We have the research that shows it does not deter a sex offender from reoffending. What it does is gives the community a false sense of safety, knowing who they are. Give me a sense, if you can, for how many men you've treated as sex offenders Mm. and how many you've been able to break down, come to grips with their issues and get into some sort of a space of recovery where they wouldn't be necessarily a danger to society. Is it possible to quantify that? I've been in private practice for 23 years, but it's been good 20 years that I've done sex offender treatment, the bulk of it full time. I'd have two to three groups a day, four days a week, adult, juvenile, male, female. At minimum, I'd have one fairly large group to two groups a week for 20 years. And we're talking an average of 10 to 15 people per group. I see them on an individual basis now. It'd be a few hundred, easy to say. Mm -hmm. And I haven't run a percentage of them, but I can tell you that the bulk of them did very well in treatments. There were a handful. If I had to just throw out a rough estimate, I'd probably say maybe 80, 20, 80% successfully completed, 20% didn't, maybe 75. I don't know. Might be maybe 15% were unamenable to treatment. But the bulk of them did exceedingly well in treatments and they don't complete treatment successfully and be in compliance with the courts if they don't show the levels of progression that's expected by them in treatment through different types of measures and instruments, stages of treatment completion, as well as just attitudinal and overall functional. They can't just complete a workbook or know what a list of thinking errors or past their sex history polygraph, they have to actually show that they function in relationships better. They make better ethical, moral choices overall. The bulk of them have been very successful. You know, I think a great deal that has to do with the way the, the treatment is structured though as well. Like, I, I don't know that as much, you're more familiar with the profession overall as a whole, but a lot of what I experienced was you have to come at them very hard in the early phases of treatment when they're hiding the most behind their self-protection and their narcissism, their narcissistic or narcissistic qualities, whatever it is, or their trauma or their victim stancing or their cognitive dissonance or whatever different thing they're bringing. 
you have to come at them early. And then as a result, the ones that, that I've seen fail tend to fail very early on because they can't, they literally struggle to handle the treatment. Some of them would actually prefer to get away from it because they don't have any constitution for those uncomfortable emotions because they haven't sat in them for any length of time, potentially in their life. You know, so they, they're rut, they rut. Are there offenders for whom there is no treatment? Yes. People who must be locked up for the rest of their lives. Yes. At a minimum, those with psychopathy, they have different neurological brain structures. They learn how to groom and manipulate better when they're in treatment. If you have those with psychopathic features, treatment actually makes them worse because they're very good at studying the environment, learning how to chameleonize and mimic. So they learn how to hide better and how to present better when they're in group. But they tend to be so utterly toxic that not only are they not amenable to treatment, but they'll break down the dynamics of a really good treatment group and start influencing the other ones in group. What do you think is unique about your particular treatment protocol? EMDR is our primary trauma treatment protocol that we do when we incorporate EMDR into their treatment protocol. We rewire not just how they got set, hardwired for the sexual interest and arousal in the first place, but also working through some of the shame and the guilt that these offenders carry because we're really good in treatment with teaching them, you're bad boys and girls, don't do that anymore. We're very good at teaching them how to not sexually act out anymore. We're very good at rehabilitating their emotional deficits, their relational deficits, their life skills and boundaries and these kinds of things, break through the criminality. But we're terrible at helping them heal the trauma they inflicted on themselves through what they did. And it's really common, at least in the population that I see in my practice, when they get to the end stages of their treatment, and we're talking, it could be seven to 10 years that we have these people in treatment, when they're in the aftercare stage and they're about to get off a probation or parole, go full onto the community without their treatment support, without polygraphs and probation or parole support, it's just going to be them and they may or may not register. They start struggling towards the latter stage. They start failing what's called their routine maintenance polygraphs to make sure they're still abiding by the treatment terms and conditions. Reason being, they're not necessarily sexually acting out seven to 10 years later, but the polygraph process itself is a very trauma-triggering event for them because now that they have their conscience back, now that they are connected to empathy and relationships and how other people feel and they have the humility and we've done beautiful character change, being reminded of what they did going through some of these latter stage processes of treatment is triggering for their guilt and their shame. And their neurophysiology locks down into a God-freeze response, they get highly anxious and it can look like deception on a polygraph. So I think what makes our treatment stand out is we incorporate the trauma-informed care model with the neurophysiology treatment of our specific EMDR protocol we do. And we marry it with what we know works in sex offender treatment protocol. And it's a beautiful comment and they're, they're healing. What exactly is the EMDR protocol? So probably the easiest way to describe it is EMDR. It stands for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. There's something called neuroplasticity in the brain, which means that the brain can constantly change and evolve based on how neural structures are put together. One of the problems for standard talk therapy a lot of times is that you have a battle that goes on internally in the nervous system between the conscious part of us that is actually controlling our judgment, our decisions, making good rational decisions, and then the part of us that's trying to protect us and or help us be uh, homeostatic with our environment. So if I'm at a high state of arousal, for some reason, I need something to cope. I may logically know that coping in that way is a bad thing, but my overall need nervous system-wise for just for re-regulation of a dysregulated system may drive me past my logical side to do something that I, you know, that I know won't be in my long-term best interest. Because the protective part of our nervous system thinks in short term, it's a goal oriented, get me out of the state I'm in as quick as possible. It's not playing the long game a lot of times. So what EMDR does is EMDR looks at and focuses on how we've learned 
to identify situations and then how our nervous system responds to those circumstances. So basically through the idea of neuroplasticity, what you can do is you can actually break down neural connections that are not overall productive for you to have, but are serving those short-term needs. And when you bring that level of awareness, almost kind of like sometimes bringing the conscious mind in to the subconscious process, then what happens is, is, is the mind starts to make micro adjustments and it starts to change actually the structure of your brain. So at the beginning of treatment, someone's brain may be structured in this particular way, but by the time they complete, they have new neural connections. The neurons that they have have come apart and actually restructure to accommodate new ways of processing incoming stimulus and incoming information, either from the external world or the internal body. This therapy essentially, when effective, rewire yes. the brain itself. You're changing the biology. Yes, you're using natural biology to actually change the physical structure and organization of the brain. You are making physical change to the body itself, to the brain itself. What motivates the two of you to do this every day? We work with some of the hardest treatment populations there possibly can be, from the sex offenders to the incredibly traumatized dissociative identity disorder, sex trafficking victims, victims of person, you name it, it walks in our door. We see the very significantly difficult cases and we love it because we see them heal. If they have the motivation for treatment and they don't have significant secondary gain to stay dysfunctional, then it never not works. Thank God for people like you who do it because I think it makes a difference. And I don't think a lot of people get into therapy or any branch of medicine saying, I want to treat sex offenders. I mean, it's a difficult job, but does it take a toll on the two of you? I think without a doubt, I mean, there are, there are certain cases that always, and it doesn't matter whether you're dealing with the trauma side or you're dealing with the offender side. I mean, there, there are certain cases that are always a little bit more difficult to process than others. The new solutions counseling and trauma center is, I, as I mentioned before, is in the Dallas, Texas area. Obviously, our listeners are all over the world. Stephanie, Brian, if if somebody is out there who is worried about another person who's on the verge of offending, or if somebody by chance is listening who themselves is concerned about their behavior online, being on the edge, what should they do? They need to get in front of it and not be afraid to admit it to themselves, you know, and, and say, okay, I need, I need to address this. I need to deal with it. And the problem for a lot of us, we don't like to see weakness in ourselves. You know what I mean? And so there's, there ends up being this avoidance of these real clear markers or red flags or concerns. A lot of it is recognizing where my vulnerabilities exist and not being afraid to look at those. If people knew how they actually operated and why they were drawn to certain things, if you could normalize that, then it makes it so much easier for somebody to recognize something in themselves and say, I need to look at this. It's okay to look at this. It's not a stigma anymore. It's, it's something I want to address. And yes, I can have hope and I can have healing. But so much of this going all the way back around the stigmas of mental health is just that this is where people go when they're weak or they can't handle their life or they have some sort of disorder that's going to get labeled. And so much of what we deal with is actually a dysregulated nervous system that really doesn't right now fit any real true diagnosable disorder. It's just basically bad adaptation or overt adaptation, but adaptation to the brain that looks 100% correct in circumstances based on accumulated learning. I've learned this is how you do something and I'm kind of stuck or confined in that box of thinking. So yes, that's what I would say is get in front of it. Be proactive, address it. Don't be afraid of it. Stephanie, Brian, thank you for being a part of this podcast, this episode. Thank you for the work you do there at the New Solutions Counseling and Trauma Center. We will stay in touch and I'd love to have you back on again. As you know, I like to hear from all of you. Interestingly, there were a unusually large number of questions in the past week from our listeners in Canada, one of whom is Matthew Lowry from Ontario. Hi, Chris. This is Matthew Lowry from Milton, Ontario, Canada. Just want to say I really appreciate the work that you do. And I think on top of being super entertaining, it's just been a really great public good in terms of deterring 
predators and predatorial behavior in the first place. And I honestly think it's just been, you know, good for the world and society that you've done this work. Anyway, so my question is about the two predators that walked in naked. That's Marvin and John Kennelly. I noticed for both those guys, you had a towel on top of the fridge, just, re just ready to go. And I was kind of wondering, like, in a broader sense, like, what is kind of your thought process towards tailoring your approach to individual predators like that? With, you know, how you just kind of had a towel ready to go for both those guys. Anyway, hope to hear from you soon. Can't wait for the next episode and take care. Bye now. Thank you, Matthew, for that question. I do try to plan out as best as possible my line of questioning. And so along with the producers and the people with whom I work, we knew there was a pretty good chance that both John Kennelly and Marvin would walk in naked. So we had a towel ready just in case, which was handy as it turns out, because we needed them. In terms of my line of questioning, well, as best as I can, given the time between receiving the transcripts and questioning the predator I've caught, I do try to tailor each interview individually and try to think out, okay, how am I going to get this guy to tell me the truth? You heard earlier about Jeff Sokol. We talked about him with the two therapists. And I didn't have a lot of time with Jeff to figure out exactly what I was going to do, but I did know about the marriage contract. The pizza was a bit of a surprise. So I was able to kind of work that into the conversation. And again, while he never broke or gave it up, sometimes they do. And the key to that is to be a listener, to try to get inside the predator's mind. Anybody can jump out from the next room and create a little bit of dramatic television, but my job is to get into the predator's mind, to understand it. And every once in a while, we get a piece of information that I think is helpful in ways that can help us protect others from becoming victims. You can always find me at chris at predatorpodcast.com. I'll be watching and listening.